Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. Welcome again to Fort Hill Community Church. So glad to have you guys joining us. If you're joining us online, uh, so glad to have you guys as well. Hope you guys are having a good Christmas season so far. Uh, hopefully we're not too distracted by the, the hustle and bustle of kind of the secular way of, of uh, I mean, some of that stuff's fun, you know, but hopefully we're just not too distracted. Hopefully we can find time uh, to really ponder and meditate on the true meaning of Christmas, which we're going to be talking about, uh, which we're really talking about this whole series. Um, last week, Aaron got us started on this new mini-series that we're doing throughout the Christmas season through the month of December called Carols of the King, where each week we're going to be looking at a different uh, you know, popular Christmas song. Some of these old English Christmas carols that we sing, uh, people sing all around the world a gazillion times every season, uh, and, and not always do we always know exactly what it is that we're singing, you know? Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but like, I know sometimes it's easy to sing along with pop songs on the radio, and you just like don't really think about what's coming out of your mouth sometimes. I, I won't embarrass anyone. I know my mom watches the stream, uh, but when I was a kid back in the 80s, my mom was notorious for singing popular songs on the radio and not having an idea of what words are coming out of her mouth. She would, I'd be sitting there as a kid, and my mom would just be like dancing in the car while she's driving and singing things that sometimes not knowing, just not thinking about it, just going along with the beat. And then something came out that just didn't seem entirely appropriate. And I would just, as a kid, I'd be looking out the window like this and be like, boom, you know, and then she was like, ah, and then she would, she'd realize what happened. And then she'd all modestly turn the radio off and repent, you know, and, you know, rebuke the radio in the name of Jesus, you know, and all this stuff, uh, you know, but we do that sometimes, right? Sometimes we sing along with these popular Christmas songs. You know, if you, if you, if you hear a song, on the radio we sing along to it right if we we might sing along with it when we see it in a movie or you know if you're hanging out in the store at the mall sometime in mid-october and they start playing christmas music already you know if it's not mariah carey it might be one of these popular uh, old carols and sometimes you just sing along with it but sometimes we don't always know you know what these old english lyrics are, are telling us some of these carols we sing though it's not always that you know with like in that case with the pop music that what's coming out of our mouth may be a negative thing but actually Actually, it may be that we're singing something that's even deeper than we even give it credit. And so that's kind of the fun and joy of what we're doing with the carols this month, is getting a, an understanding of what these songs are actually saying. Because some of these carols we sing are just chock full of wonderful doctrinal biblical truths. And that's really why we want to go over some of them this month. You know, as we approach Christmas, the reason that we're doing this series, for one, is, is really just to kind of gain an understanding of what it is that we're singing every year. And, and I'm sure that, you know, many who sing these songs every year, many who have memorized the, the lyrics since childhood, we don't always understand certain lines we're saying. But I think if we come to understand them, we might even sing these songs with a little bit more passion. We might even, instead of just, you know, singing along like we usually do every year, we might even sing them with more conviction, right? We might even, wow, this means so much more. This resonates so much more with me as a blood-bought Christian. Now, now, we also want these classic carols to highlight the scriptural story that the Bible is telling us, right? We don't want to just sing, sing hollow words, but we want to appreciate the truths of Scripture. Let them point us to Scripture, uh, you know, as, uh, as really these songs showcase Scripture. You know, we want to use these songs as a platform to lead us to biblical truth. And then the other way around, too, right? We want Scripture itself to motivate 
our singing of these Christmas carols and how we use these carols to worship the Lord. So uh, today we're going to continue that. We're going to take a look at the song we sang this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, there's a little backstory to this song uh, that we'll go over here. Hark the Herald was written by Charles Wesley. Now, if you're familiar with church history at all, uh, some people might be have heard the name John Wesley, uh, who was Charles' brother. And uh, the, the Wesley brothers were really instrumental. Back in like the 1730s, 1740s, there were these like evangelical revivals that were really sweeping through England. Uh, you know, they call them the Great Awakenings. And so through England, Britain, uh, and these guys were major players in that. God really used them during that third wave. But it all started for Charles back, back in 1738. It was Sunday, May, May 21st. And he had just finished reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And then he converted after he read that. And he, you know, he, he was just so in love with God. And then three days later, his brother John came to the Lord as well. And then the Wesley brothers, they set out. They said, we are so passionate about this. They got so passionate about evangelism and wanting to preach the gospel to the lost. Uh, but unfortunately, the Church of England, they weren't really having it. They, they were a little disconnected with the Wesley boys. Uh, they kind of said, ah, you know, your style of preaching is a little, a little old for us, you know. And they didn't, really, they didn't really connect with it. So the Wesley boys didn't stop there. They kept going. They said, well, you know what? We're going to go get some horses, and we're going to go bring the gospel out to people. And they really started doing what we would think of today as street evangelism. Uh, Charles and John Wesley got on horses. They would go head out the fields. They would go head out to the streets of old, and they would just find people and just tell them about the gospel, and they would just street preach, you know, and evangelize and tell people about their need uh, for a savior, as a matter of fact, it said that John Wesley spent, uh, really rode about 200,000 miles on horseback doing this just in England alone. Uh, and eventually, you know, he, John was known for, uh, you know, having such concern for the new converts that they were making uh, that John wanted more discipleship for these people. So he started these Methodist societies that eventually grew into churches and what we know today is the Methodist denomination. Uh, so, you know, but... Uh, after his conversion, it said that Hark the Herald was really kind of uh, written about a year after Charles had come to Christ, uh, sometime in, in 1738. Uh, the, uh, the tune uh, didn't come until later. What we know of, you know, as we sing Hark the Herald, he wrote the lyrics, but it wasn't until like the 1800s uh, that Felix Mendelssohn uh, had written the music for it. And actually the tune that we sing with Hark the Herald, that's actually used to be called just Mendelssohn. That was just a piece of music that, that he wrote. Uh, but, you know, Charles Wesley originally titled the song Hymn for Christmas Day. That was the name of the song originally. Uh, and the first line wasn't Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It was Hark How All the Welkin Rings. And uh, it was later on, about 20 years, that uh, another theologian and evangelist, uh, George Whitefield, said, you know what? Nobody knows what a welkin is. Uh, and, so, and so George, you know, encouraged him, let's change the first line of the song. And so they changed the line to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, and so that's just a little, a little backstory. Um, it's considered one of Charles Wesley's number one songs. He actually wrote about 7,000 hymns. And uh, I mean, he was, every day it was said of him that for 50 years after his conversion, he was writing music every single day. Even on his deathbed when he couldn't lift a pen, they were writing lyrics down for him as he was coming up with songs as he was dying. Um, but 
Uh, that's just a little backstory to the song, but let's talk about the scriptures and the biblical truths uh, that this song really kind of spotlights because Hark the Herald is actually chock full of doctrinal fun. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into that. Now there are three overarching themes. Now originally this song was written with ten verses to it. Uh, and it's kind of shortened over the years, you know, what we sang this morning. There's usually like three or four verses that people kind of have shrunk it down to. We sang the three this morning, and that's what we're going to look at today. But each verse kind of focuses on a different biblical truth. Now, the first verse, as we're going to break it down and see, really kind of focuses on this idea that the promised one has come. It's an angelic proclamation that Jesus has come and has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, as we're going to see. And then when we get into verse 2, it's really cool because then we're going to see a little bit more of the deity of Christ. That the fact that an eternal God has come to dwell with mortal man, right? God is here with us. As we're going to see, God is for us, right? And then the third one, it wraps it up with this beautiful message that a righteous God has regenerated unrighteous man. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. Uh, now, I don't know if we can go back, if David, if you can bring up the lyrics from Hark the Herald. Let's take a look at verse 1. Hark the Herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. When Charles Wesley wrote this, uh, he was mainly taking it from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 2, uh, where God had sent the angels to declare the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, and this is a big deal. We don't want to just go over this and not think about what's happening here, because the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem is actually a fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. If you got your Bibles with you, devices, or if you just want to look at the scriptures up there, turn to Micah. Uh, we're going to look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is the prophecy that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, this was written like over 700 years before Jesus was born. It says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, uh, Ephrathah, uh, I can never say that, Ephrathah. A lot of people, what Ephrathah actually was, was the name of Bethlehem before Bethlehem was Bethlehem. Ephrathah was during these ancient times, was actually the name of that area. And, and it is said that uh, historians, uh, historians and Bible scholars say that it was actually the people of Ephrathah who founded the town of Bethlehem. Uh, so you kind of see that, that mix right here. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little uh, to you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be uh, ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this is the Old Testament prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. You know, we, we see this brought up again in Matthew, just to kind of clarify that that's what this is, Matthew chapter 2. If you go to Matthew chapter 2, this is when Herod is asking, he hears that Jesus is coming, he's heard that from the wise men, and so he's asking the scribes, and he's asking, you know, the chief priests, he's like, well, where is this Jesus going to be born? You know, where's this baby going to be born? And so they respond in Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, they say, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for, it, for so it is written by the prophet. 
And you, O Bethlehem, they're quoting Micah, in the land of Judah are by no means uh, least among the rulers of Judah. Uh, for from you, you shall come, uh, or you shall uh, come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, in the first verse of song uh, of the song, Wesley begins by calling us to hark. That means it's an old English word. It means listen, listen closely to this. He says, "Hark, as the herald angel sings." So, in other words, he's saying, "Listen to these." divine messengers, these angels that God has sent to bring us the news that, you know, Jesus has come and his birth is going to result in the reconciliation of peace uh, between God and man. You know, the birth of this child was certainly good news to the people hearing it. And, and Wesley desires for us now to kind of join in and, and sing along as all nations, to kind of just join in in this proclamation and this celebration of the birth of the Savior, Jesus. You know, we're invited to proclaim specifically that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, just as we read in Matthew, Christ's birthplace is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Micah, which promised that the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from ancient days, would arise from Bethlehem. When we sing this, when we declare that, we're declaring the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise, uh, even one that was made 700 years before the, the birth of Christ. And the next line says, glory to the newborn king. In other words, he's saying, look, these divine messengers are announcing the birth of the king, who is the king. And he's, he's basing this on Luke chapter 2, and this is really the, the heart behind the song and the heart behind verse 1 uh, specifically. Luke chapter 2. You guys can note it down. You guys can go there and read it along with me. It'll be up on the screen as well. My microphone's running away. Look at it. It's running away. There we go. But Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say this. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Then he says, peace on earth and mercy mild. Again, he's elaborating on this message that was brought by the angels to the shepherds. And, and he's telling us that the king's messengers, you know, they're not bringing a message, you know, of war, uh, but a message of peace. They're not talking or announcing the message of condemnation or judgment. This isn't hellfire and brimstone. You know, they're announcing this amazing message of mercy and grace. Now, when we sing about peace on earth, right? A lot of people don't understand really why, why the Bible says that. You know, it's sung all over the world by people who don't know who Jesus is. And then we get these warm and fuzzy feelings. And, you know, a lot of times people have different interpretations of what that peace actually is. Um, you know, we're not talking about what you would think of when you think of world peace, right? Where everybody just gets along, nobody argues or anything like that. We're not talking about it. If that, if that was the case, then Jesus would have failed miserably, right? Because that that's not what exists. What we're talking about is peace with 
God. That's what Jesus has brought, peace with God. We're talking about how through Jesus and his death and resurrection, we may be restored to a just God where without the atoning shed blood of Christ, we couldn't have fellowship with God at all, right? And Wesley points that out in the next line. He says, God and sinners reconciled. The idea is that this peace and mercy that the previous phrase speaks of uh, consists of the reconciliation of God and sinners uh, accomplished through Jesus. Now look again at verse 14 of, of chapter 2 of Luke. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, verse 14 ends with an interesting statement. It says, with whom he is pleased. Now, that can be uh, very misleading if we're not careful uh, when we read that because it sounds like he's going to give salvation to those who earn it. But that's not what it says. Now, the original Greek here literally says, men of his good pleasure. That's what the, the Greek says. It says, men of his good pleasure. The best way to read this in the original language would be peace among men of his good pleasure. Or to put it another way, peace among men of his good will. It's not men who have earned it. It's God who has given it because it's his pleasure to give it. This, this peace that is given to us from salvation belongs to to those whom God is pleased to give it. Now, that's what it's saying, and it's actually the same language that you're going to find in the next chapter. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, is when Jesus is getting baptized by John the Baptist. Remember that? And he's getting baptized, and then all of a sudden the sky is open, and a dove comes down, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And then the Father says, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. This is the same language that he's using to describe how God is pleased with, with us, with, with we are people of his pleasing. That's, that's, that's the same language there. Now, uh, there are some in whom God chooses and in, in whom he wills salvation. That's not the result of what good men have done, right? There are not, there's not a host of angels, a multitude of angels sitting there celebrating for eternity based on our good accomplishments. That's not what they're doing, right? The angels, the angels are not sitting there, you know, glorifying us for eternity. They're not singing you know, uh, and rejoicing because some men are going to merit salvation. They're glorifying God because though none of us can merit salvation, God is pleased to give it by his own good pleasure, his own good will. And there will be this salvation peace among men of his good pleasure. What an incredible truth that is, though, for us, right, who are, who are sitting here today. Right? If, if you're sitting here today as a person who's been given the gift of salvation, you are a person of God's good pleasure. You are, you are a person of his goodwill. And it's incredible truth. It's incredible truth and blessing that we who are saved sitting here today who have called on Christ to be our Lord and Savior, we've submitted our lives to God, we are in his good pleasure. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. 
We couldn't come up with a plan of salvation, right? We can't come up with this ourselves. We couldn't earn a plan. We couldn't earn salvation. Uh, so we are saved because God designed it and God was pleased to give it. Uh, saying it another way, there is peace as a result of salvation. Peace between man and God among those whom God has chosen to delight in. And so the angels are praising God because he's chosen to delight in bringing salvation to sinners. Now, that's the first four phrases so far. Already this is way more chock full of theology than half of the modern worship songs we sing today, you know. Uh, the first four phrases that describe for us the messengers and their message. Now, the next four phrases uh, in verse 1 is now a call to us. Charles Wesley is reaching out to us and he's saying, look, so here's the story. Here's what happened. Here's how we respond to it. Wesley writes, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. So he sings, joyful all ye nations rise. He's saying our response to this kind of message is to stand up in this reverent, joyous awe and, and praise of God. Often in scripture, uh, when someone comes into the presence of God, they rise. Often in scripture, people will even take their shoes off in reverence uh, and, and joyous awe of the presence of God. And Wesley calls us as all nations to, to stand up, to join in this reverent, joyous awe of God who has sent this message. Join the triumph of the skies. By that, he just means, you know, we are to join all the nations, to join in this triumph of Christ uh, that is being announced. Respond to it in faith. Respond to it in trust. Respond to it in belief and join the triumph that is being announced by the angels in the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, sure, we can't be with the angels physically, but we can join them, right? In our hearts, we can join them with our voices. We can join the angels with our joy, right? And, and declare what they're declaring, which is the next line. Christ is born in Bethlehem. This is the first time he uses the word Christ, which is, it's just, you know, we all know it, it's, it's an English version of a Greek term that, that describes the Old Testament Messiah, right? When we sing that, we're, he, we're singing with him. He's saying that this host is proclaiming that the Messiah has been born for our salvation in the city of Bethlehem, just where God had prophesied it more than 700 years before this, as we just read in Micah. So, so that's the first verse, which is about the arrival of Jesus, right? The promised one has come, fulfilling th this prophecy. So now let's take a look at verse 2, because now we're going to take a look at some really meaty stuff, which is, it means so much to us, because what we're going to look at and see is that is an eternal God that has come to dwell with mortal men. It's, a, it's, it's what we mentioned earlier. Look at what the song says in verse 2. He begins, Christ by hev highest heaven adored. Now, the next two verses, fix this, there we go. The, the next two verses uh, are really going to, uh, they're, they're taken up kind of really with a, a focus on the person uh, and the working uh, of the works of, of Jesus. Christ by highest heaven adored. Wesley's saying, look, it's the Messiah's birth 
uh, that we're talking about, Christ. And he doesn't stop there. He says the Messiah is adored by highest heaven. Basically, the Messiah is worshipped by the greatest created beings ever, right? The greatest created beings in the world. This baby in a smelly, dirty, poopy manger in Bethlehem has been adored by the greatest created beings that exist. They worship him, Christ, the everlasting Lord. Remember, these angels knew him before he came down in human flesh, right? It's not like they just, they're, they're just showing up to the party too. The angels have been worshiping him. They know who he is. They understand that he is God in human form. They, that's their job. They literally, that's their job. They worship God all day, all night. They're still doing it right now. They're still singing praises to God. They are worshiping God. That is what the angels do. And that's why we're being invited to join in with them, right? So all the heavenly hosts, the highest, the highest in heaven, they're saying that this Messiah is no mere king. He's no mere earthly king. He's the incarnate, eternal God of the universe. Then he goes on to say, late in time, behold him come. He says, late in time. Now, he doesn't, that's not saying, uh, when we say late in time, you know, Jesus missed his flight. You know, we're not saying that the stork was running a little bit behind when they were coming to drop Jesus off, right? No, what we're talking about here is that it happened at God's sovereign appointed time, that God's people have been waiting for so long, but at the appointed time in history and God's sovereignty, God, uh, Christ has come into the world as offspring of the virgin's womb. Jesus has come into this world in this miraculous way, conceived from the Holy Spirit, which is also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy back in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 where it says therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel actually last year uh, Aaron and I got to both teach on our series last year was uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that led to Christmas, prophecies about how Christmas would happen. And uh, I actually had the honor of being able to teach about this, about the, the virgin birth. I would actually encourage you guys, uh, if you're new here relatively this year, or if you, if you just didn't get a chance to hear it, or maybe you just want to go back and hear it again, go back and check that series out. You can actually hear it on the, off the church website. There's some really, really cool, cool studies uh, there. But then he says this, this great line. He says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. In other words, he says, when you look at Jesus, when you consider Jesus, in him you are beholding the Godhead. Now, Godhead is an, an old English word that translates a Greek word that has in it this idea of the fullness of deity, right? Godhead refers to the fullness of what it means to be God. And so when he says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see... He means that, you know, in him, in Jesus, we see, we behold the fullness of deity in bodily form, right? Which is, which is a truth that is all throughout Scripture. We see this. All, there are so many verses, even in the New Testament, that tell us this, that Jesus himself said this. Paul said this about Christ, right? It's everything that we base our faith on, honestly, 
And so what do you do when you are faced with Jesus, who is the fullness of deity, veiled in flesh? You hail the incarnate deity. When you greet him, when you hail him, when you acclaim him, when you honor him, when you acknowledge him, when you do so, recognize him as God in the flesh, as the incarnate deity. Recognize him as not only the savior of sinners, but as the son of God incarnate. Now, the next line that Wesley wrote is an absolutely, if you let your heart go there and think about it, it is a tear-jerking, wonderful statement about Jesus' attitude and his heart. He says, pleased as man with men to dwell. Pleased as man with men to dwell. He's saying that Christ, in his mercy, has been pleased. That is, he's chosen of his own will to dwell with us. He's chosen joyfully in his own will to dwell like us in a fallen world as a human being. God loves to be with his people. God loves to dwell with us. He, he may be holy. He may be separated, a transcendent God separated from the corrupt uh, ways of this world system and how it does things, but he is very much with us because God chooses to dwell with his people. Now, we see this in the Old Testament, uh, and you can, we're not going to, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I would encourage you guys to read this a little bit later as just some fun homework because uh, it's such a beautiful read. Second Samuel ch uh, chapter 7. Now, in this, David had wanted to build God a temple. David was saying, I want to build God a temple. And, and the Lord basically said to David, and I'm paraphrasing again, but basically he said, you know, David, ever since my people, Israel, were wandering in the wilderness, leaving Egypt um, on the way to the land of Canaan, did I ever once ask them to build me a temple? No, he didn't. He said, I dwelt with them in a tent. That, that was what God did. He didn't want some faraway temple. He wanted to dwell with them in a tent. God did that because that was the practical way to dwell with his people. They were intense because they were nomads. They were, you know, uh, wandering in the wilderness. And when, and when God commanded a place to be built, you know, that would represent that his, you know, tangible uh, presence with his people, he asked for a tent. That's what God asked for. Now, sure, it was beautiful, it was expensive, it was elaborate, as it should be, you know, because he's, he's God, but it was still a tent. And so basically, the Lord said to David, he said, you know, look, when my people were in tents, I came and dwelled in a big tent right in the middle of it, you know, right with them in the middle. It's a wonderful piece of scripture. You should go home when you get a chance. Read 2 Samuel chapter 7, because it's a beautiful depiction. You know, sometimes it gets really easy to kind of separate God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, but we know he's the same, right? And, and the heart that we see with Jesus, that's a perfect reflection of who he is as God. And we will see him in there in the, New or in the Old Testament doing the same. But you can see here that Jesus does something even greater than that, Right? Because he comes and he dwells with us as a human, as the God-man, fully inhabiting our experience, living among us as one of us, pleased as man with men to dwell. And then Wesley, for the first time, uses Jesus' name in the next line when he says, Jesus, our Emmanuel. So far in this song, we've seen, you know, Jesus 
um, as the king. We've seen him as the Messiah. We've seen him as the incarnate deity. But now Charles Wesley uh, says his name. His name is Jesus. He's, you know, the savior of his people. And he's literally Emmanuel, God with us. What a stanza. What a verse, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. The lyrics reflect so much biblical truth. Um, just to name a, a couple Colossians 2.9, where it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And then the words of Jesus himself, right? Jesus says in John 14.7, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. They're just, these are just two of the verses that claim this, you know. There are two fundamental questions for humanity um, to answer, which uh, all of this existence is based on. All human existence is really based on this. Who is God and what is he like? And the answers to both of those are found in the person of Jesus. Look at Christ. Look how he behaved. Look how he acted. He is God incarnate, the fullness of God veiled in flesh. And as the song per points out, Jesus was pleased to dwell with us. He wasn't, you know, um, he, it wasn't the mission that he took hesitantly. Right? Jesus didn't come here and become a baby begrudgingly. He was pleased to lay aside his glory for the glory of God and the souls of men and women. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. And in, and in being with us, he also shows us that God is for us. Right? He's on our team. He has our back. Because it's Jesus, it's Jesus in Jesus, that we not only find a God... knows every pain, every failure, every struggle, every shortcoming, every time you've messed up, every person you've hurt, every person who has hurt you, the things that we carry in life, not only do we find a God who understands it, right? Not only in Jesus do we find a God who can identify with us, a God who knows our every pain, but we have one who has overcome it all in himself. What a beautiful truth that we live with. What a beautiful thing that we get to go home with today to remember this Christmas, right? That this is what has been accomplished for us. He's not just some king who reigns in his palace on his throne distant from us, just sitting there away from us and not in tune at all with the needs of his subjects. He is a king who dwells with us, who in all senses is with us. How could we not respond to this message with everything that we know, with what we've read in Scripture, with what we know to be true, with the salvation that Jesus gives us? How could we not sing with such passion, sing with just such emotion and conviction that refrain that keeps happening in the song over and over again glory to the newborn king when we sing that 
Let's not sing it as just a mundane line at the store. It means so much more for us. I'll line this up. I know it's, it's 11. I always go long. <laughs> but then comes the third verse, right? And again, it's all about Jesus. Hail the heavenly prince, uh, prince of peace. Once again, Charles Wesley is grabbing from Scripture. He's talking about Isaiah chapter 9, which says, uh, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Once again, Wesley is saying that when you hail Jesus, recognize him as the Prince of Peace who was prophesied by Isaiah. And then he also says, hail him as the Son of Righteousness. Very interesting line, right? Son, S-U-N, Son of Righteousness. That's from Scripture too, though in this case, Wesley is now taking this from a Scripture that's not just talking about the birth of Christ. He's now talking about the second coming. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus. Remember last week when we learned uh, with Joy of the World how that was talking about the second coming of Jesus? Well, when the Bible refers to Jesus as the son of righteousness, it's coming from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, which is, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise, and healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, son of righteousness, S-U-N, can also be translated son, S-O-N, of vindication. Son of vindication. The context here, the whole heart behind this, it's concerning the day of the Lord, the time when God vindicates his people and judges sin. And then Wesley goes on, he says, light and life to all he brings. And he's using John chapter 1 verse 4 where he says, you know, all, or he says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Uh, which is actually a phrase that John uses uh, you know, that actually goes all the way back even further into the New Te uh, Old Testament. In Psalm 27, 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then Wesley says, Risen with healing in its wings. Kind of just going back to that prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. You know, the second half of that verse, uh, verse it says righteousness. Uh, you know, the son of righteousness is just described uh, is rising with healing in his wings because Jesus will bring healing to his people in all matters. He will bring healing to all of us. And then he says, mild he lays his glory by. This line is very much inspired by Philippians chapter 2. And I, I want to ask you guys to turn there again. I'm, I'm going to try to wind this up. But it says in the Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Wesley interprets this scripture in kind of this accurate little nutshell. He just wraps it all up and says, mild he lays his glory by. And then the next three phrases uh, tell us the three reasons why Jesus was born. First, Christ was born that we no more may die. Christ died in our place upon the cross 
Uh, and this couldn't have happened if Christ didn't take on flesh that could be crucified. He had to come and become human for that sacrifice to happen. We just read in Philippians 2, 5 and 8, uh, through 8, you know, which told us the main purpose of the incarnation is the crucifixion. Romans 5.18 tells us that Christ's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Romans 6.8.9 then connects that very personally with us to the life of every believer. Where it says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Second, Christ was born to raise us from the earth. Christ's resurrection is now ours in the form of spiritual resurrection, what Paul calls newness of life, if you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 4. But it, it's also the promise of a future, a literal resurrection unto a glorified body. We see Romans chapter 6, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 15 says that. Corinth, uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Christ's resurrection happened uh, to his actual body. It happened to his actual human body and transformed it. And the same will someday happen to those who believe in Christ. If you're here and you're older, maybe you got a bad back, maybe you've been dealing with COVID, I don't know. Maybe you're, you're, you're sore. Maybe, maybe you just, you know, you struggle with the physical condition that we all deal with here on earth. That, what a wonderful promise that is. Our new body, according to Paul, is, will be imperishable. He says it's going to be raised in glory. It's going to be raised in power. It's going to be a spiritual body. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 44. Without the incarnation, there is no resurrection. Without everything we cling to is this birth that we celebrate. And finally, Christ was born to give us second birth. As we, if we've seen already, without the incarnation, without Jesus' birth, there cannot be a crucifixion. Without a crucifixion, there can't be a resurrection. And if you don't have those things, you don't have the gospel. The Apostle Peter tells us that in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, when he says, you know, we can only be born again through the living and abiding word of God. And then he goes on to say, and the word is the good news, the gospel uh, that was preached to you. Without the birth of Christ, there is no second birth for us. So, uh, what a wonderful promise that we have here in the Lord, right? As we, as we go out today, as you go out in the hustle and bustle of the holiday season, every, you're going to hear, you know, you may go out to the store today. You may go out and do something. And as you, as you go out, if they give Mariah Carey a break on the store speaker, uh, if you hear whatever version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, maybe don't let it pass by today. Maybe as you sing these songs that we sing, uh, stop for a moment when you hear this song. Let it resonate with you. Let the words that Charles Wesley wrote back in 1738, let it resonate and, and, and remind you of the good work of Jesus and his accomplishment for us. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, thank you so much just for all that we have, all that we have to celebrate this holiday season. 
Lord, it gets so easy to secularize this. It gets so easy to get caught up in things that maybe on the surface level, Lord, they're not bad things. They're wonderful traditions that we share with our friends and family. But Lord, would you remind us through this holiday season as we carry this even in just the rest of our lives through the rest of the year, Lord God, would you remind us of the good work of Jesus? That, that Lord, it's, it's everything that we have, our hope, starts with the birth starts with the incarnation of God coming down and being fully man and fully the embodiment of God. We love you, Lord, and we ask you to just work in our hearts as we leave today. Continue to keep our minds and our hearts focused on you. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we ask you all of this in your amazing, precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.